clear he said you were brutal. I can be. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a special episode of Pivotal Film. It's still our A block, but not our fucking A block. I know. It's you know. I'm maybe. drinking. I'm drinking a Road to Ruin right now. Although we roads. weren't going to mention the beer, I'm going to mention the beer I'm drinking. We're not going to talk about it. But I'm drinking a Road to Ruin by Two Roads. Tom's drinking a Honey Spot, and these are good beers. Yeah, these so are two roads. Beers. You make good beers. Um, so we went. We sat down. We're to sorry, d- we shit on you in the last episode. <laughs> yeah, make a better beer, and we won't. Uh, we. Uh, I was just. Fr- I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to them. I'm trying to do some good PR here. Well, I think we lost the PR with our first thing. This is terrible. We tried to bring it back. We tried to bring it back. All right. So um, we sat down to record our episode 96 and started having a conversation about Lynn Ramsey's uh, You Were Never Really Here. And it but went- we decided like, that most, the most important thing was to discuss Lynn Ramsey's entire filmography. Because yeah. You Were Never Really Here is a culmination. Um, and you're going to hear our thoughts on it, but it's a culmination of, of a lot of her previous works. Yeah, so as we kind of talked about it, um, the podcast got longer and longer, and we just... We, lost, start- our, we lost our one live viewer. She, she left with fury. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we just decided to keep rolling with it, because it all seemed essential to kind of connect all the threads of what Lynn Ramsey's been doing for the last 20 years. And this is something that, you know, you might get from us every so often, a little special... Special something. A little, 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 yeah. little something, something. Um, God, I hate myself. Uh, you know, it's, it's not going to be regular, but, but if there's, there's times where we feel our like conversation's lingering a bit in our, in our start um, and, and refine, if there's a good conversation, we might cut it and, and make, a, yeah. make a special episode. That's why our episode 96 is a little shorter. Yeah, but you get and, this special midweek bonus episode yeah, and to then tide we'll, you over. We'll lead into our episode 95. Well, after this, uh, which will be so filled with a lot of grump. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, we'll take a little break and uh, we'll get, we'll get maybe weirdly edited into, uh, you know, maybe not so cleanly, but, you know, these, these things happen. Clean. I have, I have faith in Tom. Thanks. So usually... We talk about you know movies that are out in theaters at this point, but I'm not that excited about The Spy Who Dumped Me or The Darkest Minds. No. no. And I don't think much of the rest of America was either, given how they did. Um, but recently released on digital and video um, and discs and maybe VHS, <laughs> there might be one VHS copy out there in the wild, was Lynn Ramsey's new film, You're Never Really Here. Yes. I had the chance to watch this this past week. Yeah. And... As I was watching it, we actually discussed this last week. I'd asked Tom if he had seen it, um, and he hadn't seen it, or he hadn't seen Read to Talk About Kevin, which was Lynn Ramsey's previous film. Um, you, had, you had seen Ratcatcher, I'd I guess, Rat years Catcher. ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, we had talked about Criterion. your love of Criterion. Oh, yeah. And so one of the best things about this podcast has been you know, introductions to directors who do play a role in, in shaping how we see film. And unfortunately, Lynn Ramsey doesn't have anything that actually shows up on my list. There's a lot of just misses, like a lot of things that would have appeared in my 
when I originally did my list, I actually had a top 150, and she had one film that was, um, Rita talked about Kevin, mm-hmm. was in my top 150. It just oh, know, it was? lower. Yeah, it's okay. low. it was lower in the 150s, but she's definitely, her body of work is something that spoke to me. Much like Lodge Kerrigan, Todd Salon spoke to you, and these aren't really directors yeah, yeah, yeah. I had seen. So Rhea discussed this last week that we were going to, you know, that you were going to kind of introduce yourself more to the world of, of Lynn Ramsey. Mm-hmm. Um, Why well, still have the text the message chain between us where we tried to go see this in theaters? Oh, yeah. And then I couldn't go for, I think I had to write an essay for school. Well, unfortunately, this and was only the, in theaters for two weeks. Yeah, we were never it was really gone. Here. Like, it was, if you look at the Amazon reviews, the, the divide between Amazon <laughs> reviews, like the user reviews and the critical reviews is stark. intense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I have to say, I, I, I side with the critics on You Were Never Really Here. I also uh, side with the critics. Vastly. Yeah, yeah, vastly, yeah. I side with them. Um, but it was an interesting, I think, it, because it came out, well, it came out in 2000, it debuted in 2017, technically, at the Cannes Film Festival. It did. It, wasn't re- um, it was released in April. It was just released this year, here. though, here. Yeah, here in, here in the States. It was, re- it was released in theaters in April, um, um, maybe so, late March. I mean, it was highly anticipated, I think, because well, yeah, he had won interest- Best Actor at Cannes, and the movie had won best screenplay at can and all you heard was this movie is bananas and lynn ramsey you know noted as a director who sure pops in every five or six years to yep. do a movie then spends another five or six years trying to get another movie done leaves those movies and mm-hmm. then does something else so you, you know two individuals who are highly regarded at least in the critical circles mm-hmm. and it came not a lot of people saw it the people that did see it seemed to very much dislike it um, at least the fans, the audiences, uh-huh. and uh, it, it left shortly. So we never actually got the chance to see it in theaters, and that's a shame because there was a lot of things that happened in this film from a technical standpoint yeah, that, that I like think would have been great in that Dolby surround sort of. Uh, well, I mean, there's just environment. I mean, when we can talk about it later. There's one scene in particular that I said when I was watching it on my couch um, with my laptop on my lap, so I could make notes. Uh, I believe I said it out loud, fuck, I wish I had seen this in on a big screen. Oh, yeah. Um, and not the whole movie. Some of it works really well, um, you know, at whatever size you want to watch it. But there's one scene in particular that was just kind of like, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a game changer of a scene. And, and that's something I think we should definitely talk about. But I think Lynn Ramsey's a director who's best experienced as a whole because she has a lot of motifs, themes, and... and well, and she's only got... She has four, she features, four features and yeah, yeah. four or five short films. Mm-hmm. One music video. <laughs> the a Dubs music video, I think. Oh, really? Um, was that what it was? Yeah. I didn't see it. Yeah. yeah, I didn't see that one either. Uh, so I, I think I think maybe just... Because this is a director who, who does have had a, has had a profound impact on how I see film yeah, and like yeah. definitely the themes. Like Maybe we should just start from the beginning and then build up to... Yeah, go ahead. Um, you were never really here. Uh, so th- her first feature was the 1999 film Ratcatcher, mm-hmm. um, starring really a whole lot of unknown actors. Tommy Flanagan is the only known mm-hmm. um, individual. He, what I can't even think of anything he's done off the top of my head. Sons of Anarchy. He was on that show for a while. Never watched that show because it misrepresents Nevada. <laughs> That's the running theme of this I, podcast. I take my statism very seriously. Yeah. Um, basically, the the general premise is a child um, horse plays with another child during 1970s Scotland uh, during the refuge strike. Mm-hmm. Um, during horse playing, he accidentally kills the child, mm-hmm. and dealing with the fallout of that, 
cornered with also the the surrounding of basically abject poverty. Yeah. Um, and, you know, mirrored with this new housing development that kind of like represents this false sense of hope that is that is a very prominent feature of the film. This this a continued motif of unattainable uh, growth. Yeah, but it's it's um, it's strange because even through all of you know the continued degradation of this family, um, you know, just he kills this kid. No one knows about it. I don't think that he did it. Um, so it's something that he's living with. Um, you know, the, like you said, the poverty, uh, the lack of resources, coupled with this garbage strike. I think his dad is. A garbage man, right? And he's on strike. Is that is that fair? So. I don't. They didn't say anything explicitly, but I thought that was kind of implied. But I could be wrong. Yeah, I, I, you um, at least get the idea that he's they're they're being grossly affected by this. Sure. Um, I just I, I the idea of the false hope narrative thing I think is really interesting, especially from the standpoint of that the family life is kind of happy. You know what I mean? It's not one of these situations where the fa- which you'll see later in Lynn Ramsey or yeah, Lynn Ramsey's films, where um, the family's kind of coming apart. The family's and especially in a situation where a family potentially has everything, or at right. least on the surface has everything, but is the breaking re- apart at the scene. The relationship is tenuous, but you get the feeling that it's tenuous because of a lot of outside environmental circumstances. Mm. It's hard to keep a family apart when your daughter goes outside to sit on a pile of garbage to eat a sandwich. You know what I mean? Exactly. It's, it's hard to keep your family together when, you know, everyone's getting, you know, you're, everyone's taking a bath in the same room and then your mom is forcibly combing lice out of your hair. And there's, there's, there's not enough. There's debt collectors. Everywhere. There's dead rats everywhere. There's debt collectors coming to your door. The army's then coming in to take over yep. and you just, during the strike. And you if know, you're it, the boy, you just killed a kid. And then there's other kids picking on you. And there's these, you know, a weird kind of... Um, realization of or a beginning of a realization of himself as you know a, a sexual being i i don't i would push back on that i don't think there is much of a realization of no no but there's but, the, but it's definitely I'm not saying the just, world around it yeah, is, yeah, yeah. is is seen well that's kind of what i was going to say so oh, okay. everyone's kind of there's there's these things oh, there's these kind of fissures in his life that are kind of starting to open up for him yeah um i i think yeah. ultimately though rat catcher is it's something to talk about really shortly because I don't think narratively it's it's incredibly strong. It's it's still a it's still a first feature, um, but what it does well is, is is a lot of those themes and motifs and and most importantly the images um, that that Lynn Ramsey creates. She she's classically trained or originally trained as a photographer and a uh-huh. cinematographer, and I think you see a lot of that in Ratcatcher. A lot of those motifs start and that will continue on throughout her films. And even though she had many well-regarded cinematographers, or a lot of other cinematographers take over her work, mm-hmm. including one who's particularly well-regarded, mm-hmm. you see her voice more sure. than oh, anything yeah. else. And I think it's kind of best represented in that, that opening image where you see Ryan, um, you know, is that there's a, there's an article from Lizzie Frank during the criterion release mm-hmm. where he says like, is that once the image of the mortal yet to be contained in the opaque embryonic sack? It is also life wrapped up in the end by the winding sheet, you know, kind of like that, that dualism and a lot of, there's a lot of duality in her images, mm-hmm. that dualism of like being born, being still a child, but also 
when he's wrapped in the sheet, he's yeah. representing. He looks like a ghost in you know a David Lowry film. Well, she likes and the, he dies. Yeah, an hour later, she likes the opaque sheets. Mm-hmm. Um, she does. She uses it in. Uh, we need to talk about Kevin. Um, and a even, lot as an image that she comes even back the plastic bags, plastic bags, the towel over the father's face, the towel yeah, over his face. We're never really here. Um, and I think it's uh, that's the thing that I picked up on too. Watching, uh, you know, going through all of these movies is that um, specific visu- um, visual image. And I think it's striking that in we need to talk about Kevin. While there's a kid wrapped up in that curtain in Ratcatcher, there's nobody wrapped up in that curtain. And we need to talk about Kevin. And I think, you know, talking about those images that you see in Ratcatcher, um, I don't think there's a lot to say about Ratcatcher. It's, it's a great first take. It's the images that play the important role, and especially the image of, you know, the ending image of James in the water after the other child kind of tells him he saw him kill Ryan. He's mm-hmm. kind of sinking in the water, and that becomes, that itself becomes an image that, that becomes very prominent in sure. future films. But I think for you to talk about Kevin is, and we didn't see Mover and Collar, unfortunately. I've, I've heard a lot of great things about Mover and Collar. There's a lot of scholarship on Mover and Collar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's on Amazon Prime, which a lot of her other films are. Unfortunately, we did not get a chance to see it, so we're... Going to be jumping send over us, it. Send us those emails. Oh yeah, send us a lot of hate emails. Call like, us, call us phonies. I listened to several podcasts that that talked in depth about how much I love Mover and Collar, so I do feel it's a bit of a slight of mine to have to have skipped it. But moving into to the first film of hers, I was introduced to. Mm-hmm. We need to talk about Kevin. Uh, do you want to kind of lead the conversation on on that? Because you're, you're uh, the one who saw it most recently. Yeah, I didn't love it. I liked it. Um, I you know. I don't like grading things, but I think it's a good gauge as to, you know, how I feel, you know, how someone feels about something. Um, she's so strong as a director. Um, she can kind of uh, drag, a, I think, a fairly easy narrative and turn it into something vastly more complicated and interesting, which I think she did here. Um, I think where she messed up was in some casting decisions. I don't love Ezra Miller. I think he's too on the nose. He um, is, but I his, think with his Jack Nicholson face, I do from think birth. Lionel Shriver was an on-the-nose writer. Well, that's so I just read this book too this week, um, and the the back, and I don't really want to compare the the, the book oh, no, to no, the no. movie. There's there's never there's, a point. To there's do that. so much more. She she it's a four hundred page it's a four hundred page book. She goes into so and told from a first person narrative from basically a fairly letters, unreliable yeah. narrator, um, so she can say anything she wants. Ava in this book can say anything she wants. She can expound on any feeling she was having or any situation. And uh, Lynn Ramsey doesn't give Ava the same credence in this movie because she's not telling it from a first person point of view. There's no voiceover to kind of, um, there's no voiceover to hold everything up. She's doing everything with images. She's doing so much with images. And, and it's see, really, this is weird. really impressive. My- problem with reading you talk about Kevin and there, there's a lot of striking images in this film that that work for me um, that are brought back to what she does throughout the rest of her filmography uh-huh. but the reliance on red was on the nose that says Ezra Miller's performance was right. for you the redness was on the nose opening the sh- the opening shot of you know her you know the tomato, the tomato fight thing. I think that's fine. I think that that's that a good a, introduction to to the voice of the film. Well, it's a good introduction to I think, and I don't mean to interrupt you. It's a good introduction to to the uh, to the underlying violence of the film. Exactly, because and the you way don't she's know being what's carried, happening, the way she's being carried, almost like a Christ figure sure. in that moment, and that's that's then echoed 
in, uh, you know, you, you were never really here, um, I think even more impressively. And I think that works as an establishing image. Yeah. But unfortunately, I think there's a reliance on that. And I don't know if that was a failing of her necessarily. It's her first really major motion picture. She also has Seamus McGarvey, um, who's her cinematographer, who I don't think is really doing anything. A lot of people love Seamus McGarvey. I don't think he's that great. I don't think he's doing anything special that somebody else couldn't have done. Exactly. In this movie. But there, there is that over reliance on bread. The, the house has been. You know, bashed with red paint, she slips behind in front of a you know tableau of red soup cans. Yeah, um, trying to avoid one of the the well, victims red, of the assault. There's oh, red which everywhere. we should which we should probably discuss the the plot of the film quickly. Yeah, um, yeah. Eva is the this deals with two years uh, following a school archery attack. You could say it's a school shooting, basically a Columbine like attack using. Uh, Kevin, in the book, who's an post, archer. It's very specifically post, or it's pre-Columbine in the book, mm-hmm. and he says in the book that like Columbine stole his thunder, but they don't kind of they don't talk. Yeah, about Yeah, it's not expounded in the, upon in the, in the film. And this deals with two years following Eva is. It's almost on the two year anniversary. Eva's still living in the same town. Um, she's going about her day to day life miserably, racked with guilt. And everyone in the town hates her. And everyone in the town hates her. And and the, the big discussion in the film is whether that's a rightful hatred or a unrightful hatred, and why she's still there, why she's you know has this complex to to just have remained in the town. Mm-hmm. Um, the way the narrative's framed is is you don't know where her husband Franklin, played by John C. Riley, and her daughter are. That's revealed at the end where they are mm-hmm. not alive. <laughs> Definitely with some arrows. And- yeah, which which is I think like one of the better scenes that the way that's done. Um, it's and, better and than I think, in the book. Yeah, yeah, too. no, and and that's that's one of you know where I think the failing is is a lot of the on the nose framing. Um, there's a lot of other things she does with framing that that I think is is masterful, and a lot of the things she does yeah. with Paul Davies, who is a sound designer, um, that are masterful. There's did you ever watch this this YouTube series called Every Frame of Painting by Tony Zoe? Yes, I've watched a couple episodes of that. So there, there's there he has an entire episode dealing mm-hmm. with Lynn Ramsey's framing yep. about how, and this is something that's not really mentioned, you know, um, not really mentioned a lot in the criticism, uh, at least initially when the film was released, they kind of focused in on the reds and the, and the stark contrast, but there, he, he mentions how every time you see Eva's perspective, you know, like they, they keep her in the frame, but when Franklin's talking, he's cut out of the frame. Yep. So he has this voice of somebody who's outside of it. Franklin mm-hmm. being the husband, Franklin dotes over Kevin, doesn't see the fact that Kevin, from birth, is a monster. Doesn't see anything. Yeah, he doesn't see anything. Yeah. He, 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 he's an Annie Pollock sort of character, you know, just thinking everything is, is rainbows and sprinkles. Well, and he um, kind of regards Eva as just a baby-making, he's like the person yeah, to no, make exactly. a baby there's, with, there's and no now discussion. everything is good. There's no discussion of, yeah. of having Kevin initially. She's a... Uh, that's a major omission that's stark uh-huh. um, in, in the fact that it dehumanizes Eva. Yeah. She's a very centered character. She's a travel writer, a renowned travel writer yep. um, when the film starts. But he's Franklin's always removed from the frame and has this domination over Eva. And Kevin, I think, kind of echoes that. I mean, Kevin, I think, we can intrinsically say is an evil person. Yeah. And we could get into nature versus nurture argument. I don't think that's that's not necessary to well, the discussion the, of, I think, of the film. No, and I think the movie... Uh, removes that in the sense that he's evil from the, it is but there's there's interesting framing choices too um 
just like how Franklin is always removed from the frame, there's also images where Kevin mimics Eva's actions. There is sure. early on where Kevin is biting his nails and placing his nail, like biting off pieces of the nails, placing them in a careful arrangement on the table in front of him. Mm-hmm. Whereas Eva is, you know, careless in her life now, doesn't, doesn't care at all. It well, has this very David Lynchian sense where she's eating eggs and she's taking out the pieces of the eggshell and arranging in the same way. And there's a later shot where they're both kind of sitting there during a visitation while he's in prison and they're quiet. They're not saying anything, but they're sitting in the same way, but facing two different directions, yeah. which I think is interesting to bring up. It's the only kind of like nature versus nurture. Does she really, did she contribute to this sort of act that he has now? Yeah. It, but it's there just to kind of like undercut it to, to have express that doubt. She doesn't never really directly well, think, expresses it. I think that's important. I think that's one of the things. I think another thing about those scenes and those examples is that they're both trying desperately to separate themselves from one another. She's so trying to separate herself from him because he's a monster and he's trying to separate himself from her because he hates her. But they're both they, they have similar mannerisms. They sit in the same way. They do similar things. I think another interesting thing to consider is maybe the costume design in the sense that um, I didn't consider, even consider the costume design. So. That she's an, she's an always very like restrained Tilda Swintony clothes. Yeah, just very puritanical, restrained, flowing, flowing, big flowing things. He when he grows oh, up, he's always yeah. in very tight clothes until the he end. Is a hipster? Like, you can always motif. see his midriff. Um, except for Which the I end. mean, it says Miller. He's, he has a pretty good midriff. Yeah, except for the end of the movie, he's yeah, he's the flesh. He's a good guy. Except for the end of the movie when they go on the dinner date together and. Then when he commits um, the school, the, the killings, the massacre, yeah. he's wearing very flowing um, shirts that are just like his mother. And he seems consciously aware of the fact that he's wearing a shirt like his mother. He's trying in some way to, I think, hold a mirror to her and kind of say, I'm, you know, I'm just like you. And I think Lynn Ramsey's allowing us to kind of piece that together ourselves. How, how attached are these people really? Like, where do, they, where do they actually sit in their lives? Are they actually as distant as we think they are? See, and that's, that's, I think, is a smart part of this movie. That's why I really do love this movie, um, is those framing choices. And I think hearkening back to how they sit, how they dress, um, but especially that, that egg scene gets me. The egg scene's good, yeah. Because he's ripping off pieces of his nail. So he's ripping off pieces of flesh, rending the flesh. Sure. Violent. He's a violent creature. She's ripping off... She's taking out pieces of egg. Mm-hmm. As though... She's she's a character wracked with guilt. He's a character who refuses to accept any blame whatsoever. Right. And and taking out the pieces of the egg almost seemed to me as like a hallmark of this unconscious guilt of bringing this monster into the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she is... He let her live to torture her still, in my interpretation. She stays there to continue to torture herself. To be tortured, yeah. Because she does feel guilt. It's not necessarily justified guilt. Because Lynn Ramsey makes the conscious choice of having them sit in two opposite directions to say they're two entirely disparate people. Yeah, but I think um, all of that stuff comes to a head, though, at the end of the movie when she asks him, I need you to tell me why you did this. And he says, I used to think that I knew now I'm not so sure. And I think that phrase could have been coming out of her mouth in regards to why she had him. Oh, like exactly. why does he exist? I used to think I knew 
Now I'm not so sure. Exactly. And she's still attached. He's still her son, but. Well, I think that's a, and I think that's a really interesting thing. Naturally and different people. They're naturally different people, but I almost wonder if that. I almost wonder if that matters. Like, who is the monster here? I think that's a question that the, the the movie asks over and over and over again. Is the monster her for giving birth to him, or is the monster him for what he did? But also, I mean, I think that's one of the failings of the movie is that they've kind of established that he's been a monster forever. See, and that's what, what that's why I don't think that question's ever brought up. I don't think that question's there. It's I think, more valid. I think it's there to build to her guilt, but I think ultimately the movie unconsciously not unconsciously but very quietly very quietly establishes that guilt on his side because i think there there there's framing choices and there's there's ways in which the narratives told yeah, that that state this i guess but i'm not sure that the movie would be a movie if there wasn't some suggestion of guilt on her end like who cares he's just a shitty kid who that she ruined by giving birth to? Because she and she then, feels the guilt. I mean, it, it's still present in her life. It's it's overwhelming. But I think that's the interesting thing of the movie. And you know, I would give I, you. I, I don't want to go. Too, I don't want to get too, too long much into this. it. Yeah, but yeah. I would give you one thing. Um, the the daughter. Um. She gets a lot of signs to remove the daughter from her son, and yet she still feels an obligation to the son. Well, that's all. That's all. Franklin's. He doesn't see. Yeah, it. but she refuses. It's never brought up. No, but she she you you could make the argument that she refuses to have a voice and refuses to speak up for herself and refuses to to state. But I think that's. What a, I mean, that we're asking a very American question in 2018. In you know 2011 when this movie came out, 2012. I, I think these were questions that would have been. I think these are questions that are purposely put there. No, but I think it's uh, it's. I mean, this this is argumentatively also coming off the back of Lynn Ramsey being you know thrown off of Lovely Bones for. Who knows what reason? Because she wanted to make a good movie, and Peter Jackson wanted to make a shit movie. Yeah. I mean, that's the only reason I could think of. But and also probably because Lynn Ramsey doesn't have the same name I, recognition as Peter Jackson at that point. I do think and the so gender the gendered issues are were there. Sure, sure, sure. Well, that's the thing. Is she? I think the I think the question, the most interesting question of the movie is: Is she obligated to love this kid because she had him? Mm-hmm. No, and exactly. That I, is, that and is I think a, a major. That's the big question, right? And I don't think, and I don't think. And he asks her, you know, um, you know, when she, when she tells him that they're gonna have another baby, and he says, "Well, what if I don't like her?" And she says, "Well, you would just get used to it." And then he's like, "Well, you're used. You're like you don't like me, but you're not used to me." Um, and she doesn't even really kind of respond to that. Yeah, because that's Because true. she doesn't like him. She never wanted hold, him. He does know he's a sociopath. He does know he'll hold that mirror well, that, to her and in so the that's, ways that need to And so to that's be where I would criticize the movie is that it doesn't establish... Um, I think it would be more in, a more interesting film if there was a slow, progressive um, degradation of character from Kevin's standpoint. But from the earliest, the earliest moments of the movie they've established that these people don't like each other. Yeah. When she clearly, she clearly wants to, that's the ghost. She clearly wants to have, that's our, that's our orchestra taking the break. Actually. (laughs) Yeah. They're tuning their horns. They're emptying their spit valves. Um, she clearly wants to have a normal relationship with him, but she doesn't know how. And so when he res, when he resists, she doesn't know how to reestablish a connection post resistance. So the resistance just gets that much 
you know, it's like the poles of the magnets gets that much stronger and they're repelling each other that much more with that much more force. Um, I think it's a really complicated movie. I think I think some of the choices I think some of the choices are odd and maybe even as a, a segue into um, you know, you were never really here. I think she tries to let the imagery do a lot of work. No. I think some narrative I think some narrative backstory exposition would have helped in establishing the characters of everybody involved. Um, Which is really important and leads right into You Are Never Really Here in the fact that I think the major criticism of You Are Never Really Here is its lack of exposition. But I would argue that it works in... It, it really works in this movie. I would say that it's masterful in You Are Never Really Here. Yes. That is one of the... It's one of the tightest films I've ever seen. Yep. And even... I would also say you... We need to talk about Kevin. Is similar. Similarly, doesn't need it. Uh, we're we're definitely we're going to disagree there. But we can right now. I think we we can definitely move on to you're never really here. The crux of this of this discussion, narrative. It, it the narrative is told in images, and I think this is the culmination. Right now, I mean, the next film she'll do probably the next culmination. But this is a culmination of of using images, using frames to tell a story. Well, I think when you go through some of her her short fiction and, and through the film or short fiction her short um, oh, it's short films it yeah. is, it's fiction it's and fine. through the rest of her filmography you see a lot of things kind of coming to fruition all exactly. at the same time and you were never really here so we were talking hey, about the water motif yeah. a swimmer that follows one year after we need to talk about Kevin mm-hmm. is a 16 minutes you know short story I mean you short film you just saw this so maybe you want to speak well, on I think that. it's 14 minutes maybe 14 with, minutes without yeah. the credits oh, it's yeah. 14 minutes um, I just think She's clearly doing some work there because she uses a lot of the visual imagery that she uses in Swimmer in um, parts of You Were Never Really Here with, like you said, the underwater scene with the, um, you know, the uh, debris in the water, just the kind of, a kind of floating, um, you know, uh, there's a uterine quality to it. It's oh, exactly. dark, that, that, but the light that's that coming in is sack, warm. Yeah. Um, the the stuff floating around you the know desire what I mean? like all, and I think the major thing with swimmer um, swimmer just to quickly explain it's it's about boys swimming through the English channel uh, the English channel for English lakes and rivers um, he's hearing conversations go on around him while nationalistic kind of like themes and songs of of England play he eventually leaves the river and when he does he gets a lot of this discordant noise that drives him back into the water and he buries himself in the water yep. kind of like surrounding him thematically surrounding himself with just what the nature he's comfortable mm-hmm. with. And, you know, this, this motif of water is brought up a lot, but then especially you're never really here, which is the turn and you're never really here. But I agree in the fact that swimmer says everything while literally saying nothing. Well, and I would, and I, the other one I would point to, I mean, we kind of already talked about the sheets um, and the towels and, and um, the opaque cloths over faces and stuff like that. The other one I would point to is you could make a distinction between, I think a pretty clear distinction um, or relation between um, the scene in Ratcatcher where he's in the house, when he's in the, in the development complex for the, the first the, time, going into the, going into the, the wheat field sign, um, or well, even, it's not wheat, just the, the field scene. But yeah. just the way that it opens up. And now you can see the sky. There's nothing in the way. Um, the, that symmetry of the shot of, you know, there's no, there's really no glass. He goes, he jumps through it. And there's you know, nothing. It's, it's frames per, with perfect symmetry. Yep. And there's nothing else out there. It's just him in this field of, of high dead grass. Um, and the music is, is swelling. Um, 
she shoots in a way that she hadn't shot the rest of the film. There's some low shots from in the week kind of looking up at him and getting the sky. Um, kind of showing, a, uh, you know, intimating a growth of character a little bit, or at least a growth of knowledge and awareness, you know, in, in the head of, about the world outside of himself. And I would go to the scene where he um, buries his mother as a similar kind of thing. Yeah. Where we're in the city for the whole movie. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we, she opens the whole movie up to one of the most glorious scenes of filmmaking I've, I've ever seen in my life with maybe Johnny Greenwood's finest cinematic score moment. Oh, we're, talking, we're now talking about You're Never Really Here. Yeah, and, and You're yeah. Never Really Here. Um, and it's, That's why I was, it's, really, I was really confused. Yeah, I yeah. you were still on the rat catcher. Um, and it's, <laughs> it's, just, it's just breathtaking. The whole thing is breathtaking and you have Joaquin Phoenix in a suit and a full beard and an untangled ponytail doing what seems like the most natural thing in the whole world. I think before we really talk about some of the motifs in Nerve Never Really Here, we should quickly explain. Well, I mean, so his, you know, his mother was killed because he, well, no, we should quickly explain. I was just going to go back, but go ahead. Um, So you're never really here. uh, Joaquin Phoenix plays a a individual um, suffering from post-traumatic stress from the Iraq war and uh, another, well, he, was, he was, he's also an FBI agent. They don't, they don't mention that at all explicitly in the film. They mentioned the fact that he was in, in the Iraq war. Um, now he's basically become a contract killer um, or specializing, a muscle for hire. Specializing, specializing in, in rescuing girls who, who are victims of, of, of sexual of kidnapping assault. and sex crimes and stuff like that. Um, eventually he is uh, assigned a job by a state senator. This takes place in New York city. He, uh, the daughter's gone missing. He goes, rescues her. It turns out that the daughter was a, uh, her most famous client was the governor who's running for reelection. Mm-hmm. And from there, everything unravels. And mm-hmm. I, I would agree that, that, so from there, everyone around the Joe, dirt. Joaquin Phoenix's yeah. character begins to get murdered. And murdered, it becomes yeah. basically a very, highbrow variation of a taken sort of film you could argue um and i say that just in the basis level to kind of explain yeah you know, what, what you can but but this movie is just a fucking masterpiece yeah i don't know it's funny because even though and i think this is maybe not my problem with lynn ramsey but i think the thing that separates her movies this movie specifically from my list is that she's such an artist um that I have trouble getting into them. I have trouble getting into the whole film emotionally. I was into that one shot emotionally. I was into a couple of other scenes emotionally. Um, but everything is so artfully done and pristine and just wonderful. Like even the violence that it kind of holds you, it kind of holds you at, at, at arm's length. Well, no, exactly. Bit. It wants you to perceive all the little details. Well, as Guy Lodge said in his uh, Variety Review, like, no shot or cut as idle or extraneous. And this is a major issue that they, that people had with you never really there is, is this film does not in any way hold your hand. No. Um, and, and you could say that about her previous films you know, where you'd want that narrative. This movie is a taunt a hundred. I mean, I it mean hold- a taunt 83 minutes, yeah. but it's telling a 110 minute story. Well, you could, I mean, if you could look at, you know, juxtapose, we need to talk about Kevin with this movie directly. Cause she kind of does like we've established, she kind of does, does the same thing with, um, you know, backstory, expo- exposition of backstory. 
Um, she gives you... I didn't think she gave you enough in We Need to Talk About Kevin. I, she does it roughly the same way with you know some flashes and, and, and some sounds and some images. She gives you fucking less here. She gives you about... She has flashbacks in here to his experiences in the Iraq War, a very short sequence where he sees murdered girls from his FBI agent. It is maybe 90 to 100 seconds of footage. Maybe. Told throughout maybe. the entire film. Yeah. So you're getting eight to five second cuts. I maybe. still don't know. There, there's, a, there's a very famous, uh, very, like one of the most prominent sequences is, is a child's... Um, twitching foot after being shot for yeah. a candy bar. Mm-hmm. I still don't know who shot that kid. It looked like another kid. It was another kid, yeah, on the other side of the fence. Just the candy yeah. bar. And, you know, he's there watching that, so he has that guilt of that. And this this entire film is, is ravaged by guilt. Sure. Misfounded guilt. Um, he's, he's abused as a child. His, you could only assume, alcoholic or somehow abusive fa- uh, father mm-hmm. abuses him and his mother uh, with doesn't... a ball-peen hammer. Yep. To, there's... Very Loge Kerrigan style, clean shaven, low voices. Like when he's suffering, like in Loge Kerrigan, where he's suffering in clean shaven, yeah. when he's suffering from schizophrenia. It's same here. Where he's calling him a pussy. You know, only pussy boys would say that. In you were never really there, uh-huh. but it's it's undercut by by this discordant strings that Johnny Greenwood. This is Johnny Greenwood's second best score. For me, I'd say. <laughs> You're going to hang on to that forever, aren't you? Oh, I fucking love the score in <laughs> the movie that is. But I would say that this is the best score that works. This is Greenwood's best score for the movie. Uh, I'd say it's the second yeah. best score for music in the sense that there's another movie that I'm... Well, I don't... I mean, we can... That, argue, we, we, I, think, I think people will be able to guess what movie I'm talking about. I, know, he's done a lot. I mean, all of no, his there's, scores there's several. There's several, yeah. I mean, we already talked it's about It's not the There Will Be Blood. No, and it's, it's not, not The Master. Why did you do that? I'm cutting that out. Um, <laughs> yeah, and everything he does, even with the things that like I didn't think were gonna work, with like some of the techno music um, when he's driving around at the beginning of the movie, um, not techno music, but just you know stuff with a lot of beat, it's, like it's the jittery a, stuff. It's a slight EDM. It almost seems like it synth. wants to dive into the EDM stuff, but then it always breaks apart. And I think that's the thing I love about Johnny Greenwood's stuff is that when you think it's going to go in a direction, it, doesn't. it disintegrates into something completely just like scene altering. And he does, I mean, in like, you know, we kind of mentioned the master, I think um, when we talked about the master, I love the main theme of that movie is a, a orchestra hit and then it breaks apart and it just kind of fades away into nothing. And a lot of that stuff happens here where there's a song and then it, becomes this kind of really hard-edged, just massive sound that and you have to imagine is exactly what's happening in his head. And that's what I think is great about like the, him and Ramsey coming together. And Ramsey mm. said, I don't, I don't have the direct quotes in an interview. Like, it's, it was like, I'm fucking like, overwhelmed that I'm with this man. Yeah. Because like, she uses sound to, to the nth extent. You know, Paul Davies was her sound designer for when you talk about Kevin, and you're never really there. Um, Never really here. Uh, you know, when you, when you talk about Kevin, you have that buzzsaw sound and you have the, the buzzsaw, the locks being cut, the garden sprinkler throughout the entire narrative, even though it doesn't come into the end. And here you have that throughout the entire film of just, you know, that is used, that, that sound and the sound design is used just to really punctuate how much the PTSD has destroyed well, and, Joe and, and how much is guilt in in not being able that he feels to take care of his mother or feeling like he's not himself a man is just used to weigh in on you and just 
build these walls that are constantly coming in and in and in. Well, you kind of talked about, you know, you talked about Clean Shaven, and they're both two movies. I don't know if they have anything to do with each other. They're both two movies that um, use sound to demonstrate how a man's psyche can be ripped apart. And, and that, is, that is difficult because people are fucking dumb, which is why I think people didn't want to like this movie <laughs> because she's not saying, especially because Joaquin Phoenix doesn't give We're you... very pretentiously. No, it? fuck those people. <laughs> fuck all the one-star reviews on Amazon and anyone who didn't like this movie. Um, if they're not saying, like, oh, I'm being ripped apart, they're not going to notice that he's being ripped apart. And especially, especially in this movie where, you know, his just looking at someone conveys which, so which we much have to, fucking damage. But we have to say, with all which, the sound, uh, obvious, obviously, like, her and Joaquin Phoenix working together is, is a godsend. I actually don't think that's such a good idea. But we really? can talk okay. about uh, Well, so my thing is that I feel like sometimes... You overwhelms? Yeah. You don't know what, and she doesn't know. I'm not sure what the end of the movie looked like Mm -hmm. on paper. I doubt very much it looked like Joaquin Phoenix crying in a little girl's room and taking off his shirt and then wandering through the house with his shirt off, shirt in his hand. I doubt it because how do you script that? Have, you know I what I mean? My, I have my finish cut to that, that shot, but we'll, we'll get to that in a, in a minute. But you know what I mean? Oh, exactly. Like, I don't know how. So I'm imagining he's amazing, and that scene is amazing, but it's just different than everything else they've kind of they've just kind of she just with walking with a guy like walking phoenix you just gotta let him go and if he gives you something that you didn't expect well that's the movie now this is the this is what the movie is um and i feel like we run into this like sometimes with like daniel day lewis and like with leonardo dicaprio now where they overwhelm the where they just the, kind of the take frame. over the movie and then what do you do what is a director supposed to do now when when that shit is happening i don't know I don't know if it's a problem. It's just something I noticed. Yeah. It's something I noticed in the performance. But, but getting back to that, that aesthetic, using that aesthetic and, and using where you talk about Johnny Greenwood subverting expectations and the sound design subverting expectations, one of the things that I love, too, is, is early... This is a brutal movie. Yeah. But it's not a brutal movie at the start. Um, and there is, like you see with Clean Shape and, you know, very minimalist uh, cinematography. And the cinematographer here is, is Thomas Townen, who's did nothing before this. He did attack the block and he was a camera operator for I mean, we talk about the, Kevin. We yeah. talk about Kevin. Um, but when he goes to make the attack on, on the brothel where the girl's being held, you know, it, it builds up to this climactic sort of image and then it cuts the CC feed yeah. black and white. All the violence is framed in such a way where it's controlled. Well, I think, she, and I like that I do too. because of the fact that narrative building to that point is Joe Joaquin Phoenix's character is an, character always in control mm-hmm. early on he gets rid of angel because angel's son saw where his mother lived he needs to constantly be in control and so the violence there is is held within that's the way he kind of mm-hmm. keep his emotion at bay and then later when the he takes uh nina the the girl to um they rescues yep after murdering everyone in the brothel takes her to to get collected by her father and then the motel clerk knocks on the door gets shot and brain matter in very vivid crimson red just splatters on his face and from there everything unhinges and violence becomes very profoundly in your face you see hands rended and and cut from people being murdered you see his mother shot through the eye in a very straw dog sort of image well you see um, a, a little a teenager with her hands covered in blood exactly her food plate covered in blood because he's food. lost control this is and this is where 
you know, she uses the framing of images, the the violence becomes so visceral and becomes sinew and, 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 and bone because it's no longer within his control. It's it's out of his control. But when he goes to attack in the end of the film, he, he goes to collect Nina from the governor. Um, he murders a couple of the bodyguards there. Once again, those murders are off camera. Yeah. Barely, if any blood, just a little dab of blood here and there. Because he's, he's back in control. But then when he loses control, once again, a very graphic scene of violence. And that well, kind of everything in this but you can is also, so compounded yeah. to use images and sound is used to tell a narrative without actually telling you the narrative. But you could also argue that the sound and the images and stuff like that um, work together to create a movie that seems way more violent than it is. That the whole movie seems violent. The whole movie is just like thrumming with intensity and like physicality. It's just kind of It's a movie that's unrelenting. Um yeah, like it's it is unrelenting is a good word for it. It doesn't ever let you have a second to consider what's happening. And to its to its um to its credit, profoundly to its credit, for me a little bit to um a little bit who's failing, like I said, just from a, a me wanting to get into it standpoint. That she gives you so much to consider and every single thing, it's kind of hard to just to sit with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the thing. Maybe this is one of those movies that will reward. Maybe more things will open up for me the more times I see it. I think this is, this is 100% a movie that in five years people are going to go back and look on and be like, oh, wow, this is a masterpiece. Yeah. This is a movie that, that demands repeat viewing. And it, it, and it, you can do it because it's only eighty three minutes. Exactly. Yeah, you can watch this ten times in a day, night. and you'd be like, "Oh, I did a work day, mm-hmm. basically." Um, but just just so you know, the violence is controlled, and they loses that control. And then and then that shot when he after he sees his mother murdered, um, mm-hmm. the two assassins are still there. He shoots both of them, and then just that that scene where he yeah. watches the the guy crawling, and then. The guy lays there. He talks to him for a while. Then he lays down next to him. He gives him the pill. Gives him the pill, realizing that he's not that kind of. He's not the same kind of person as that. He's not letting himself fall into that type of person. Mm -hmm. He's only this really violent, aggressive person against people who victimize children, which is absolutely a motif that carries throughout Lynn Ramsey's filmography. Is Mm -hmm. is is child children in peril, children being not allowed to have a childhood. You know, well that's childhood cut. And so he sits down, they, they listen to, was it Charlene's I've Never Been to Me? Mm-hmm. Just singing it together. And the guy then dies holding his hand. Yeah. You know, and that, and that like, you, that's all the human, you know, Joe before this has been a very human character, but that in itself well, it kind just of screams how much of a human he is. I mean, I watched an interview with Lynn Ramsey, and she said that she doesn't ever just do straight adaptations of books, which I think I thought was a weird comment because she takes a lot from the books that she adapts. The Jonathan Ames, like from Jonathan Ames's book? Uh, who, who, from, wrote, who wrote You Were Never, Never Really Here. Here. But also, I, and I would argue from, um, I'm holding it to, we need to talk, talk about Kevin as well. Um, but his quest for suicide, Joe's quest for suicide throughout You Were Never Really Here is like very prominent in the book. Mm-hmm. And to just read for the book, um, you know, this is on page six. 
Um, it's you know from so it's very early. He's left Cincinnati. He's come home. Joe lay in bed in his mother's house. He thought about committing suicide. Such thinking was like a metronome for him, always present, always ticking, all day long. Every few minutes, he'd think, "I have to kill myself." And that's that's echoed where he just brings a knife into his mouth and holds. But it, it there. also it also illustrates why he lays down next to that guy. He wishes he was that guy. You think so? Oh yeah. Mm, I don't think he wishes. Maybe. I don't think he wishes the circumstances were the same. I, I hadn't thought about that. I that, think he, that makes a lot of sense. I think he wishes he had a even. He he wants to avenge Nina. He wants to find her. He wants to take care of her. He wants to get her. He also desperately wishes that someone would just fucking shoot him. Well, and that and that leads into that that point you made in the beginning, where he talks, where he goes immediately after this. He goes, wraps his mother in trash bags, garbage bags. Yep. Um, just because that's all he has, and, mm-hmm. and brings her out to the waters, and you know, um, Anthony Lane said in his New York review, he hangs in the cold waters of a lake, dressed in a suit and tie, with stones in the pocket, in the pose of a crucified Christ, and he's mm. like ready to oh, give sure. up himself. He, he watches, you know, the, the strands of her gray silver hair kind of float. He's he's thinking back to the way he's failed her, um, and we're he's saving ready. her from her father, yeah. uh, and, and we're it ready feels too, He's though. like his father yeah. now because. That that scene had been recently show, like had just been shown where he's covering himself in the same towel that his father did, and you're ready to give up too, because yeah. you know where this is going. He he can't say he feels like he can't be saved, and then he looks down, and then sees Nina in the place of his mother, and that's why he takes the stones out. He struggles, and you know he finally has a raison d'etre sort of to to live. Yeah. You know he has that that last drive, mm-hmm. and that kind of leads into the entire climax of the film. Uh, yeah, and that scene, that whole scene is is just unbelievable. Um, and if and that, it, I love the, the the sound design there too, where he's walking. Yeah, he's oh, walking yeah. after an inch, like bam, bam, well, bam, like just, a heartbeat, a heartbeat sound of each step, you know, kind of driving the fact that he has like this purpose. It's like a march almost. And you don't consider the. You, I mean, when you're watching it, and if you're not like thinking about these things when you're watching them, you don't consider the fact that you haven't seen a tree or grass or rock or dirt for the whole movie. And so the establishing The only shot time you'd of, seen dirt, you actually the only time you'd really seen dirt is the dying kid's foot digging into sure. the dirt before. Um so the establishing scene of that or the establishing moment of that scene when he's picking up the rocks and there's a they're in a forest path. You don't see the lake yet. You don't see the hills, you don't see the sky. You just see this forest path and he's picking up the rocks that he's going to you know, he eventually puts in his pockets in, in in the garbage bag that he uses to bury his mother, um, and it's just this gradual, progressive lead up to in the you know in the Johnny Greenwood song during that I think on the soundtrack it's called Tree Strings. Um, it's five minutes long. I listened to it on the way over here. Um, it just is this gradual build up until um, it just opens up. Like the scene opens up and, it, you know, they're all swallowed by the water and then the music kind of, be, you know, the, there's a guitar part in the in the in the song, too. And eventually that becomes swallowed up by the strings yeah, exactly. and some of the discord noise and um, everything swallowed by the water, basically. And it's just all the everything. Noise. It just takes everything. Um <laughs> Thank you. 
it's uh, part of the thing with like the things floating in the water. Yeah, stuff floats in the water, but lots of people shoot shit in the water and don't show you things floating in the water. But it's just kind of like the suggestion of like pieces of somebody, like pieces of a life, pieces of of everything. Just and kind you of like see that you know, just it's just all being buried now. It's all going. You Everything see, you in see your that, whole life is going. You can see now. that you know, you know, you know, mentioning the embryonic sac and mentioning what you see in rat catcher and it's ending and what you see in swimmer and it's ending of kind of like being born in the water. Like you could see this as a scene of Joe being reborn by the water, like the, like the water baptism aspect and the piece, the stones that he used to kill himself or the weight he held of, of that guilt. And now he's just, he he goes from, I mean, he, he, he gets it back. I mean, it's, it's symbolic. It's not narratively like he's a changed man. But at least he has a purpose after that. Well, and you can make the argument, too, um, to go exactly, you know, to support that, that after the fact, yeah, you don't see him kill anybody. He just walks into the house and everybody's already dead. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's a, he's got a new, he's wearing a new outfit. Um, he almost seems like he has a new attitude. There's no more control, like you said. It's just his rebirth. Unbridled revenge, yeah. He's come out of this water. He's been... He's rebirthed himself almost for the single sake of the fact that he now realizes that he's not the only person in the world. I mean, just to go he back. Becomes, he becomes that man. He becomes that man that his like, father always said he wasn't. Just to go back to the, to the book real quick, um, on page seven, you know, he talks about the idea that killing himself has always been. It's been like the story that's kind of held him up. And he knows how it's going to end. It's going to end with him dying. Um, but then he gets really into the idea that he doesn't want to leave a body. So he's going to drown himself somewhere in a place where there's a current that's going to take him out. Um, you know, he says, it's all right, you can go, you were never really here. Um, and then he says, Jonathan Ames writes, uh, the story never involved leaving a body behind, leaving a mess behind. That was shameful. It was time to be removed. That's what it would be, a complete erasure. And so when I think when he realizes that, that he can't just erase himself, that he's, imp- especially, and this just occurred to me, she yells Joe the second he leaves when she's getting carried out of the hotel room yeah. after he brings it back, she yells, Joe, there's a recognition that somebody out there that's knows alive who knows who he is and knows what he's there for and knows what he's about. He tried to give her soda and candy and take care of her. And, you know, she tries he made to the conscious decision as he's preparing it to buy soda, to buy water, to yep. buy different drinks and different candies. And then she tries just to suit her needs. And she tries to kiss him. And he's like, no, you don't need to do that. Yeah. There's a recognition. And I think he and it's unspoken, but it's fucking there because it's a great movie that she knows she's aware. Like she knows that this guy is out there and maybe he's looking for her. And so he can't just erase himself. There's no more of this thinking that I can just kind of disappear off the face of the earth. He can't. You were never really here doesn't apply anymore. No. Because she knows he was there. He wasn't a figment of her imagination. Um, I think one of the, th- the cool things about the movie early on is that, like, you know, the taxi driver of mouths, like, you were never really here. And then Lynn Ramsey tends to, like, linger too long on places that he just was. Like, you know, when he makes the phone call to say he's out of pay phone right so after. the job's done, yeah. He's like, it's done. Cincinnati job. And then the... the the camera lingers on that spot for longer than it lingered on him in that spot. Um, that water fountain, yeah. In the water fountain, too, it lingers on a couple of things. Um, you can't do that anymore. You can't, you know, the movie ends in a kind of dream sequence, a kind of imagining, like, I would love to do this. But he knows he can't do it anymore. Well, the nice it's, thing, too, is... She's is, taken it, it's, you know, he's taken it away from him, she's taken it away from him. It's, she's got to so, be this person now. So the film ends... 
with Nina having murdered the governor yep. um, in self-defense. You know, Joe sits there, and I, I, you said he didn't like that shot where he's kind of like rending his shirt. Well, I didn't and, not like it. I just, it seemed, um, I'm not sure, I'm not sure what it did in regards to the rest of the movie. Like, I'm not sure if the rest of the movie supported him. I mean, I know that he's... He says I, I think, kind of, I think he it says was an argument. thing like, what am I doing? I think it was an argument of, of him feeling as though there is a potential. Uh, I was listening to our podcast discussing Lynn Ramsey, uh, Rad Carpet, which is actually pretty decent. Um, that says like there, there's a possibility that somebody else had, that he maybe at that time maybe had thought somebody else had done it and he was being set up. Or the fact that, that he was still trying to protect her childhood. That, that he maybe even oh, knew that Nina had done it. See, let me just disagree real quick. I actually thought, it, the, I thought he went into that house and it's a kid's bedroom. I think maybe he thought that this guy had a kid and that he was maybe not in the right. You know what I mean? Oh, that's, that's like that he was too. That this guy was actually a good guy and that he had got everything wrong. Not a good guy, but he had gotten everything wrong. Um, he had inferred the wrong things. Um, he, you know, he heard things from people but they had, he had been told by the one assassin that no, but you, one of his but you favorites. Know, he comes from sure, sure. He go, you know, here's from the assassin, but it's a, it's an assassin. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he comes from this world of you know seedy hotel rooms and in like brothels where there's naked Johns running out into the hallway to stop him and stuff. And then he's in this gorgeous mansion and he walks up the stairs and it's just a little kid's bedroom. And I think he and because he says the whole time like, what am I doing? Like, what am I, what am I, you know, and he says it really low in a very Walking Phoenix mumbly way. Yeah, that grumble. Like, just, oh, what am I doing? Um, maybe this would be a good time to put some of that here if I can find it on the internet. Um, and it, it's, I think for a second he doesn't know what he's doing. Like, where, like, what the hell, where am I? I'm just in a little kid's bedroom. What does that even fucking mean anymore? Um, and it isn't until he goes down the stairs. And that could speak to your rebirth point as well. That, like, this rending of his clothes, this kind of being half naked kind of gets him back, gets him further back to who he is as a person. And I think in, in reality, you know, the guy says, the Senator Votto says, um, I hear you're brutal. And he's like, I can be, um, is his response to it. Maybe in reality, he's not brutal. Yeah. Maybe in reality, he's just a good guy who took care of his mom for whatever many years and, you know, joined the military and was an FBI agent investigating sex trafficking. And but he's not a guy. He has to do to keep innocence. Right. I mean, that's, that's, that's the point is, is I can see his reaction to is the fact that he didn't want Nina to get to that point. He wanted Nina, despite sure. all oh, the pretenses yeah. and her, her history to, to remain a child. And when he sees her eating dinner, covered in blood, covered in blood. eating steak or chicken or With fish a straight or whatever razor it is, next to her, straight razor, uh, the blood seeping into the peas. He just accepts that that's what she is now, but she's still a child that he can take care of. And that's what leads to that last scene, that last scene where he, you know, has the idealization, ideation. That leads into that last scene where he has the ideation of committing suicide. Mm -hmm. And, you know, nobody cares. He he gets to pretend for that last time that he was never really there. Until she comes out of the bathroom and says, says Joe again. Yep. And says, Joe, are you ready? And then they leave and it has that shot, that lingering shot. But unlike before where he was gone and there, maybe there was never somebody there. You get the, the strawberry shake that he had drank. You get the remnants of that. Mm-hmm. And so he was there. He's moved on. She's moved on, but 
but he's left his mark. And that's, I think, a great vision, you know, to kind of end on. It's an extraordinary movie. Yeah. Um, I actually am surprised. I hope you're right that in five years it's a movie that people come back. You know, in five years it gets its criterion, you know, reissue, and then people start writing reviews like, what were we... What well, were is, we as a society missing with this? This is maybe where we could take our, our, our pause. Nothing can hurt me. Nothing can touch me. And so I think throughout her filmography, and I think just kind of bringing this all together, um, to talk about Lynn Ramsey as a filmmaker, uh-huh. a lot of people compare a lot of her earlier works to like Truffaut's 400 Blows mm. um, or uh, Victor Reese's Spirit of the Beehive, which I see with a rat catcher. I don't know. Maybe those movies might show up in our conversations <laughs> later. Who knows? Um, but to me, a lot of her films, uh-huh. and especially You're Never Really Here, feel like the perfect modern adaptation of Virgin Spring. Huh. Ingmar Bergman. Okay. Um, Go ex- the, ex- expound. So so you know, Virgin Spring. Mm-hmm. A a uh, a child is pulled from her. You've seen Virgin Spring, right? Mm-hmm. You know, pulled pulled from her family, a poor family, raped, murdered. The father, played by Max von Sydow. Um, yeah, I guess he was revenge. in a couple. He was in a couple of his. Movies. A couple, couple of those. Maybe a, maybe one or two <laughs> Ingmar. A little known in my Bergman films. Um, Seeks revenge. Uh And then, you know, asks God where he is. You know, asks for forgiveness and kind of like a rebirth from there. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, when they pick up the body, the the spring water kind of comes from there. Because Igmar Bergman had that really complicated relationship with God. Yeah. But I think there's just so many shots that you see in Virgin Spring that are so similar and you're never really there. And the one that gets me is the scene where he's, he is washing himself. And he's shirtless, and mm-hmm. you know he's got the scars got from the his scars. life. Yeah, and yep. He's rubbing himself when he's preparing himself and cleaning himself, and that just so harkens to see where Max von Sydow is kind of like cleaning himself by beating himself with the um, the, the branches yeah. and washing himself with the water, and also the the scene that really got me. I mean, beyond beyond all the water motifs that, that Ingmar Berman loved throughout mm-hmm. his filmography, and like water playing a very prominent role in Lynn Ramsey, the thing that got me is in Virgin Suicides when he's planning. Virgin Spring. Virgin Spring, sorry. <laughs> Not the Virgin Suicides. In Virgin Spring, when Max von Sydow is planning the, the, the attack, mm-hmm. um, it, it shows that scene very symmetrically framed. And a lot of people just keep saying, every time they see symmetry, I mean, I, I actually saw a couple articles talking about symmetry, go like, well, Wes Anderson subversion. It's like, go fuck yourself. Yeah, Wes what Anderson the did fuck so much. are we talking th- about here? Wes Anderson did so much other, like, so other people did symmetry. Wes Anderson uses symmetry as a crutch. These yeah. people use symmetry as like a foundational, like, element in their the photography of their movies. Yeah, and so 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 he's so Max von Sydow is kind of like pulling this branch, and it's it's symmetrically framed, pulling this branch to like prepare for its attack. Um, you know, finally rips it out of the ground. And what shot do we do right before, you know, and this is before everything kind of unravels mm-hmm. and, and, and the world that this family has created for themselves in Virgin Spring kind of falls apart. I mean, mm-hmm. even more so than what's happened to him. What's that shot that we get in You're Never Really There where he's planning his attack and it has that perfectly symmetrically framed shot of the ball peen hammer and like kind of closes in on mm. that. 
Interesting. It's definitely possible. And it would explain some of the vaguely religious, like, and that's, that's why I think, that's and that's why I say it's a perfect modernization because Igmar Bergman kind of relishes in the fact of like maybe there is a, a supernatural there. Lynn Ramsey makes the very purposeful choice after he burns that photo of the of the first child. Uh-huh. He takes he dumps a Bible on it sure. to yeah, yeah, get yeah. rid of the fire, and yep. this is a very humanist film, a very existential film. You're never really there. Uh, you're never really here to say that remake our destiny, you know, and it's maybe a subversion of, of what you saw in in something like a Bergman. Well, this is, I mean, and so there's another thing where, um, in that same, um, how'd you like that mic drop on the Virgin spring (sighs) shit? That's a film. That's a film nerd's hot take right there. (laughs) Um, the other guy in that YouTube thing, um, every scene's a, every frame's a, every frame's a painting. He kind of makes that point too. Like, Oh, how is a, how is a movie poetic? You know, what makes a movie poetic? And I would argue that one of the things that makes this movie particularly poetic, which it is, is that the title really matters. And if you think of this in terms of... And it's never mentioned. Like, never like mentioned. No, Jonathan it's mentioned Ames in, in that, that quote, that Jonathan Ames thing. But that's said, an interior... So you, don't, you don't know that that's what he wants, it's italic- but it's shown. Right. It's italicized in the book because it's an inner thought. You know, it's something that he's thinking himself. But if you look at the title without the italics and without the context that... Jonathan Ames is providing, you were never really here. Almost sounds like a dare, like from God. Like, you know, it's easy enough to snuff you out, like whenever I want. You have to keep doing, you have to keep doing the work. Like someone's telling him from somewhere, you have to keep doing, you have to keep doing the work. No. When he's clearly given up, like, you know, we can go back to the, to the, you know, the scene at the lake. When Are you saying Joe's a, a, a nouveau Desmond Doss? Doss. Who's he from? Axel Ridge. Oh, no, I'm not saying that at all. Um, I just think of when I, when movies aren't good, I don't bother learning like the names of the characters. I just know if you had said like Andrew Garfield. This shit just gets stuck in my head, man. um, You know, the choice to, yes, the choice is his, but it's, it could be representative of a higher, of the, of, of a feeling of a higher moral, um, obligation. Obligation. That's a perfect word. A higher moral obligation to take the rocks out of his pockets, to fight back to the surface and go get her. Because he's and is he giving that? Is that a lesson he's learned from himself, or is the relationship that you're suggesting between you were never really here and the Virgin Spring, kind of Lynn Ramsey's way of saying that? No, there's something. There is a higher order that we are that we are. But a higher order adhering that to. a higher order that is maybe of man itself. And I think Lynn Ramsey makes that very conscious choice of saying that, you know, society kind of frames our world and society is the one that can devastate a child. I think, you know, the devastation of childhood is prominent throughout three of her features and mm. her earlier, earlier, shorter films. Um, and, you know, where you talk about Kevin dwells in that you're never really here dwells in that, the, the ways that, well, so, so society can create the will to destroy a child, but society can also create a soldier to save that child. Exactly. And, and that's, that's kind of like the, the, the crux is, is Joe still is early on kind of like a selfish man. And the fact that he kind of wallows in this, you know, self pity, Mm. um, 
not necessarily self-pity, like not unjustified, trauma, but not unjustified, yeah. but still pity. And, you know, it, it takes his mother's death to kind of be rebirthed from that, to, to realize that you know, the person who he relied upon, who had all his past traumas, who he's still taking care of, the reason he was still going was to, to help his mother. But now he has something else and something that's kind of like reborn in itself. Nina, somebody who didn't have a previous experience with, but who represents somebody who has the potential to be born despite having murdered a governor, despite mm. having been raped. She she has the ability to take that autonomy and she shows that autonomy and that willingness to be a human yeah, yeah. and to move forward and, and, and to be a child. And now he has a purpose uh-huh. to become a father, to become the father that he thought he never could be. That's, that's very lightly touched on with what his own father said to him. Mm-hmm. And I think none of this is ever said. No. And that's why, like, Lynn Rand, I think this conversation about Lynn Rand's need to be had is because she doesn't tell you anything. She just shows you everything. Yeah, I think everyone should be having conversations about Lynn Ramsey films. Exactly. Um, and I think that's I think that's one of the benefits. Even those people with the Amazon one star reviews. I mean they should watch it a couple yeah, times. Fuck those people. Um I think this is one of the benefits of the fact that she doesn't release movies very often. Is that when they come out, it's something to be reckoned with. And every time and every time somebody else wants to to you know counter that voice or wants to frame that voice for her like with lovely bones with like with jane's got a gun the movie she infamously stormed off of mm-hmm. she puts her foot down because she needs 100 yeah. percent control of her films and it's needed because well she's not making if she's, she's making art she's yeah. a fucking artist she's not trying to sell tickets she's making fucking art if you're neverly here was made with a conglomeration of people it doesn't work you know, it needs 115 minutes. It, you know, it, and then it becomes maybe an above average film. Mm-hmm. But this is an 83 minute long movie that doesn't, that moves both at a glacial pace, but moves a mile a minute. That says nothing, but says everything you need to know. That shows everything and tells nothing. Well, like, I don't, and I don't want to, I, I feel like we talked about this before and I'm going to hark, I'm going to go back to it because it, bothered the fuck out of me when I saw it originally. And this is the scene in The Shape of Water where Michael Shannon explains to uh, Michael Stuhlbarg when he's killing him, his char- you know, the character, why he eats the candies. Okay? And like we said in The Professional, Guillermo del Toro, you don't, he doesn't you don't say need it. to do that. Guillermo del Toro is a wonderful filmmaker. He's wonderful. But he got scared at that moment that this thing that Michael Shannon's character was doing in the movie was going to kind of be um, beyond people's comprehension of why he might be doing it or whatever. Or they might not gauge how eating the candy relates to his character. Um, Lynn Ramsey doesn't give a fucking shit about that. So she just shows... Th- so, you know, we need to talk about Kevin. You know, um, whose fingers... I mean, I think it's it's Kevin's fingers who look exactly like his mother's fingers. They're fingernailless. They're blunt from use. You know what I mean? is crushing the fruity pebbles on the counter for n- no reason that's ever expressed outright. Yeah. There is or a it's, scene it's in Joe's, it's Joe's fingers crushing the jelly beans. The second he hears about like a sexual assault, the sec- the, the, the sexual, not, not even sexual assault, the rape of, of girls yeah. and he crushes it. Right. And that's like, that's fairly on the nose, but it's still but it's, unwasted. But, in, but he's not like in a lesser director or in a, in a, 
um, a director who was less sure of what she was trying to create or what had she what she had created in writing the script would have inserted like a voiceover like I need to crush something every time I hear about no rape. not even that or something not something even stupid. that stupid it would have given you a one second shot of his face just give you that yeah yeah it just, would have shown it would have shown a grimace or something to like tie those two images together Lynn Ramsey doesn't give you that because Lynn Ramsey knows her audience is smart enough or, or hopes her audience is smart enough or the audience she's speaking to is smart I don't want to say smarter. The audience you're speaking to is attentive enough. Well, that's a, another to, thing. To know what's being said there. And again, not to you know, drag this conversation out even further, but just like as we're talking about it. That's a fucking are, bonus episode. Yeah, it's these fine. things occur to me. Um, she, the way she uses bodies. Like, it's, she's not, like a lot of people in movies, they just use either the face or the whole body. But she goes, you know, like we said, she uses the hands, like close-ups on, on hands and close-ups on... On like headless, but like, there's that short film Small Deaths, where it was a Small Deaths. No, it was um, the Gas Man. Yeah, she did. Where there's a scene, there's lots of scenes where it's just children's like torsos, kind of running around, holding on to each other, um, and that she uses that. So you're the expression of what these children must be feeling comes from the sound, but and also the context in which she frames. And Gasman doesn't say anything. Gasman, the narrative of that still argued to this day about what's actually going on right. there. Um, and that's just like, I don't think a lot of people, I don't think a lot of filmmakers are brave enough or confident enough or know what they're doing enough to just let that go and to, and to build a film around this kind of very classic, these classic techniques where you don't have to, you don't have to say it. You can just, show it you can abandon exposition for metaphor and symbolism yeah and there there is definitely the the point of movies has escapism the point of movies to to escape those questions and i think there's just a certain class of directors who don't give a shit about you escaping that and you don't no. go to a lynn ramsey movie to tune out to unwind for yeah. 80 minutes that's not even asking a lot of you it's only asking i mean when you talk about kevin's her most narrative heavy film and that's, you know, 110 minutes. But most of her movies cut in 90 at yeah. most. Um, but everything she does, she just packs in there. Yeah. I mean, what is it? $5 on Amazon? Yeah. I don't see any reason why you, like a person should. And even, even if, it's, even if you don't want to pay $5, it's an Amazon Studios film. Give it two months. It's going to be, be on, on Prime. Amazon Prime. You can watch that. You and can watch me to talk about Kevin. You can watch... Um, Mover and Caller, which can, we yeah. have, unfortunately haven't didn't get the chance to see. And you um, can watch all of her short films on YouTube. Yeah, I mean, everything's there. I, find, I guess find a way, see the short films, then buy the movie, so she's getting something from somewhere. Um, but you're just doing yourself a disservice by not really digging into this film specifically, but Lynn Ramsey and know, I, and in I general. Think, and, and exactly, like bringing back to the points of, of talking about you know, the inspirations like whether or not this was inspired by a Bergman or a Truffaut or are those directors, those directors are dead and we don't have the ability to talk up. Like these were directors who used images and images more than, than they ever used the words on the screen. You can't, you know, you have the interviews with them. You, you have the essays that they, that they wrote or responded to, but you cannot, you don't have the, the modernity 
with that. But this, these are the types of filmmakers, Lynn Ramsey, Loge Kerrigan, unfortunately, you know, kind of like, kinda he's doing his own, he's got to eat, got doing his own thing. But we have other filmmakers we're going to talk about on our lists who, who are doing similar work, who are inspired by that and bringing it to a modern era. era. And I think if, if you're into film, if you're into understanding where film's been, where film's going, that, that, that pathway it's taking, you need to watch these, these movies. Well, and you, especially, you know, we talked about, I think in preparation for this conversation, we mentioned nocturnal animals. Mm. Um, and Tom Ford's another guy who's, does a movie every five years, but every time he does, he's saying it's con- a lot. he's constructing a piece. Yeah, and you could even point to someone like who's a like single a, band's a painting. Yeah, you can um, you can look at someone like Martin McDonough as well a little bit. I mean, he's more mainstream at this point, and he's you know so controversial that you know he's almost no one wants to touch him. And he's definitely a person who uses who just uses narrative. Like he's but he's doing but he's doing as a playwright, first right? And foremost, but he's still doing he's still doing the work. Like as a, of a filmmaker, he's not expressing every little stupid detail to you. He's, you know, doing playwright things. He's telling you what you need to know, and then he's showing you. You know, we talked about Seven Psychopaths in the beginning of the thing. There's a lot of stuff in Seven Psychopaths that didn't get mentioned. That, but that's on the fucking table. Yeah, and there's another filmmaker, like Mick G, doing a lot of things with sure, Charlie's uh, Angels. J.J. Abrams, I think, is yeah. another one who doesn't. Who knows? Sometimes in those movies, right? Yeah, but I think. I think now we're becoming, we're allowing the now pretentiousness being, of ourselves to come out. Maybe we should wrap up this little before we special total bonus jerks. episode. Yeah. The fact that we, we actually needed enough content for the bonus episode. Yeah, this um, did not start as a bonus episode? No, this actually started out as our A block, which you'll, you'll hear when we re-edit our A block to say <laughs> we usually have an A block. Uh, this turned into a bonus episode. You know, I think there's going to be a couple times where maybe this we happens. get a little bit... Uh, you know, I hope so. I fucking hope the rest of the year... And 2019, however long it takes us to get through this list, um, produces some movies that we need to spend a whole episode talking about. Yeah. You know what I mean? Least, I, hope, I hope that happens. In the background. Because there's some movies that a lot of movies exist in a vacuum. Um, something like Eighth Grade that we talked about or Sorry to Bother You. We're, both of those were directorial debuts. Uh, and they're good movies. And they're good they're, movies that, that, that show them. the potential of growth and show... The, the world to come from both of those directors but when you have a director like Lynn Ramsey who's only done four features but all of her movies have been a step up and a, and a next step in that culmination of what the art you know it, it, you, well, it behooves guess, you to kind of like look at the, the narratives that she's done as a whole well I guess so when we get hired eventually as you know full-time film reviewers for some kind of whatever digital internet publication that exists in the future I guess um, we're having one and a half hour conversations about Boots Riley's like four features that he's made or exactly. Bo Burnham's four features and, and how they kind of, and you know, all their shorts and you know, uh, the trajectory of their careers and, and trying to see how their latest kind of mind bending work fits into that category and, and why it should be appreciated let's, more let's than Let's be honest is. though. We're probably in four years going to talk about Boots Riley, Fantastic Four and, I'm fucking out if that's the Bo case. Bo Berman's swamp thing. Well, that, that, that... Actually, I can maybe get behind that. That's, that's eighth grade two. That's freshman. <laughs> Twist, Kayla turns into swamp thing. So, uh. this, I think this kind of wraps up our, our bonus episode. Yeah. Um, um, which is not a bonus episode. We're going to get back to recording our actual episode. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can follow us at pivotalfilm.com. And I posted on... Just real quick, I posted on their... Um, 
the links to Stitcher and um, iTunes, Apple Podcasts. So you can just click on it and just subscribe it, right from there. What, if you hate both of those things, because for some reason you have a real bad history with Stitcher, like any own. of your famous podcast apps uh, will, uh, will They all have, have it. There. I just haven't figured out how to make links for those <laughs> apps. On Podcast Addict, like, some of the stuff works. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm slow. Uh, so, yeah, do that. We're figuring this shit out. Give Go us a break. Go to um, pivotalfilm.com. We're in the process of creating other social media. Yeah. I, I am. Mario is. Tom abhors it. Uh, and if you have any questions, pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Yep. Uh, we'll be sure they answer them <laughs> once we actually get mail. Yeah, once we, we'll do a bonus. We'll do a bonus episode where we answer some questions. I think if you we gotta get questions. some fucking yeah. questions, send us some fucking questions, people. Come on, like about cheeses, anything, anything. Okay, so uh, I think that's about it. Well, listen to us next time as we dive into our number ninety fives. That should be coming out shortly. Or where are we gonna do this? Maybe ninety five, ninety fives. Yeah. So I think, so I think that about wraps it up. Uh, join us next time when we talk about our number ninety fives. Yeah. Uh, for physical film, I'm Mario Ponzio. I'm Tom Nolan. See movie, drink a beer. Talk to you next week.